Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Before we get started today, I want to talk a little bit about summer. One thing that we do really well as a church is summer. And so over the next few months, there'll be a ton of great opportunities to get connected, have fun, and make an impact in Frederick. But here's the thing. Most of the stuff that we do during the summer doesn't get stage time on Sundays. Our MCs won't talk about it. I won't talk about it. Some of them do. Grocery store buyout, that's kind of um, a caveat to that. But everything that we do this summer will be posted on social media. And so if you don't follow us yet on Instagram or Facebook, you should take out your phone right now and follow us to stay in the loop for what's going to happen this summer. We have a, a bunch of cool things coming up. We bring as many people as we can to a Keys game. Sometimes later in the summer, uh, we actually rent a pool that's just for this group of people to go swimming. Um, and then we even do a worship night later on this summer. But the thing is, we won't talk about it from here. And so if you're interested in getting connected, or if you're new and you're wanting to meet um, some more people, the best way to do that is follow us on social media and come out to one of those events. One thing I will plug before we get into the sermon today, though, is that for a third year in a row, we're partnering with the Downtown Frederick Partnership at their movie nights that are on Friday nights and their first Saturdays. And at these events, we set up booths and we do face painting and rock painting. We just do everything we can uh, to partner with them and, and love this city. And so if you're interested in anything like that, again, we won't talk about it from up here. You, you'll see it on social media. But if you're interested at, in helping at any of those Today, you can write local engagement at the bottom of your connection card, and Danielle, who's in charge of that, will follow up with you this week if you wanted to join in one of those. Now, let's talk about Ruin the Game. Today, we are starting a brand new sermon series, and it's actually based on a hashtag. Here's the backstory. So once a month, I get our leaders together, and I give them my best vision talk for the season that we're in as a church and where I feel like God is moving us. And so this includes staff. It includes our small group leaders that we call collectives. It includes any of our directors that help us run the environments here on Sunday morning. And in January, I was digging through some of the books I had been reading, some of the podcasts I'd been listening to, even some of the conversations I've been having with community leaders and other pastors. And I kept feeling like nothing was speaking to me. Right, like nothing was actually clicking. And so I did what we all do when we aren't being productive in the way that we should. I went on social media. And so I started scrolling through Twitter and watching that. Everybody hates each other on Twitter. But as I was scrolling through, I saw the hashtag, ruin the game. Now, by a round of applause, have any of you seen this hashtag before? Is, he was at first service. He doesn't count. The whole team in the back's like, yeah, we've heard it. That's good. That's the, that's the point. Hold on. We'll get there. Here's a better question. By a round of applause, are any of you fans of basketball in the NBA? Okay, there we go. That's better than first service. So last fall, Steph Curry, a basketball player for the Golden State Warriors, scored 51 points in a game that included 11 three-pointers. Now, it was against the Wizards, which is just a coincidence. But after the game, he posted on Instagram, and he used the hashtag, ruin the game. Now, I'm not a Warriors fan. I'm actually a Wizards fan. I'm a Wizards, Redskins, Orioles fan, so I just cry all the time. So I'm not really a Warriors fan. In fact, I've rooted against them a lot when LeBron was playing them. Uh, I'm not even really a Steph Curry fan, but I love this hashtag. 
And so as soon as I started, I started to dig in and figure out where does this come from? Like, what's the point of this? And I love the reason why he posted it. You see, Steph Curry is undersized for the NBA. He's kind of a small guy. Uh, he can barely dunk. He doesn't do that often. He went to Davidson College, which is not a prestigious basketball school. But he is changing the NBA forever, and basketball purists don't like it. In fact, many people believe that he has ruined basketball for the way that he plays. They hate the fact that he shoots so many threes. They hate the fact that he'll shoot from half court if he feels like the shot is open. They hate the fact that Golden State has been to five consecutive NBA finals and they've won three of them. They hate the fact that superstar players will actually take less money to play on his team because they want to win. And then they hate the fact that now other teams are spending a ton of money to build super teams to try and defeat them. The older basketball generation hates the way that he plays. They hate the way that he wins. And instead of other teams catching up, instead of coaches just changing how they manage the game, they're complaining that he's ruining basketball. So when he posted on Instagram, what he was doing was he was mocking those people. He's calling those people out for saying that he's ruining basketball. That's why he's got like the shrug. He's like, who cares? But his play style and his superstardom have not just affected the NBA, but the entire basketball world from the ground up. He has changed how basketball is played. He's ruined the game. And this is exactly what Jesus did to religion, right? He came to change the way people saw God. He came to change the way people saw the church. He came to change the way that people saw each other and people hated it. Story after story in the Bible starts with people complaining about the way that Jesus was living, complaining about the way that he was teaching, about the way that he was honoring, about the way that he was leading, about the way that he was ruining the game. In the book, No More Dragons, Jim Bergen points out that the number one question that Jesus is asked is, why do you hang out with those people? It's not who is God. It's not how do I get to heaven. It's not what is my purpose in life. It's why do you hang out with? Why do you eat lunch with? Why do you become friends with sinners? And in the Bible, when we read these stories, it's always religious people asking Jesus this question. Why do you hang out with those people? Luke 15, it's a really good example of it. It says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now Jesus, everywhere he went, he had a crowd that would follow him. And oftentimes people who did not believe in him, people who were far from him, people who were outcasts on society would try to get a front row seat to see who is this Jesus person. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them. I love that. That's like my favorite line. And so even eating with them. Every time I read that, I imagine like an old Southern woman, like clutching her pearls and shouting, oh, my stars before fainting, right? Like even eating with these people. But Jesus came to ruin the game. He came to turn religion upside down and people didn't like it. They didn't like who he spent time with. They didn't like what he taught. It wasn't what religious people wanted. And it certainly wasn't what they expected. And that's what this series is all about. So during this series, we're going to be digging into the teaching of Jesus to learn how he ruined the game, how he changed religion forever. And today we're actually starting with one of my favorite stories in the Bible and a story that has shaped this church to its core in Luke 19. And so Luke 19, verse 1, starts with this. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and one of the towns that's along the way is Jericho. And he's actually on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, where he will die for our sins. In Luke 18, just one chapter earlier, 
Jesus reminds his disciples that he's going to be arrested, beaten, put on trial, and executed. But then he promises them that three days later, he will rise. And so he is on his way, and it's like the storyline of that, for that to happen. But along the way, they they enter Jericho. In verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, tax collectors in Jesus' day were despised. And the way the taxes worked during this time is there wasn't really a set tax rate that everyone had to pay. Rome didn't institute uh, a standard for taxation. So what Rome would do is they would actually auction off the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder in a local city or town. And then that guy was responsible for collecting a certain amount of money and sending it to Rome. It's whatever they wanted. They would give him a number, and he was responsible for collecting that amount. But the deal was, whatever they could collect above that, they could keep. And so that's how tax collectors made a living, by cheating other people out of paying more taxes than what Rome actually required. So as you can imagine, tax collectors during that time were greedy, right? They were manipulative. They took advantage of people. They did anything they could to steal money from their community. And oftentimes it was not just a community, it was their community. It was a community that they lived in. It was a community that they grew up in. And they did all that so they could have the lifestyle that they wanted. This was such a big problem in the Roman Empire. Uh, in, in fact, in Asia Minor, archaeologists have uncovered two statues where the inscriptions have said, to an honest tax gatherer. Apparently, they were so few and far between that if you were an actual honest tax gatherer and didn't cheat people, you were immortalized with a statue in your likeness. And so Jewish people didn't like tax collectors because they were greedy and manipulative. But they also didn't like them because in the Old Testament, God had actually promised them the land that they were living in would be theirs. God had said, this is your land, I'm giving it to you. But at the time, they were under Roman occupation, and the tax collectors were actually helping Rome keep the Israelites under control. Right? Tax collectors help the Israelite people be under Rome's control. And so they despised tax collectors for robbing them and stopping them from receiving what God had promised, that land. And Zacchaeus is one of those tax collectors. And so they hated him. They despised him. And here's how the story continues. He tried to get a look, and Zacchaeus tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, I've mentioned a few times at Collective that I didn't grow up in the church. I started going when I was in middle school to a church plant in Chantilly, Virginia, and while there, Jesus wrecked my life, changed my family forever. Eventually, I ended up going to a Bible college in Johnson City, Tennessee called Milligan, where I got a a pastoral ministry degree. And one of the weirdest moments in my life involves Milligan and this story in the Bible. My freshman year of college, I was taking a few Bible classes, and one afternoon, I was studying with some friends, and I was struggling to remember all the names and places from the New Testament. We were actually specifically learning about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, and I just couldn't connect the people to the places to, like, where that went and the whole story. And so I asked my friends how they were going to remember everything, and pretty much in unison, which was very creepy, they said, we just sing the songs. And I remember immediately thinking that I need new friends. But I asked them, because I didn't know, like, what songs are you talking about? They said the songs from Sunday school. Now, I had no idea what they were referencing, because I didn't grow up in church. I didn't go to Sunday school as a kid. I never went to children's church. And then my roommate started singing, and some of you know the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. 
That's like the only time you're ever going to hear me sing. I think I've referenced singing before. It'll never, thank you, thank you. It's terrible, whatever. That's why I'm not up on stage with the band. So they sing this song, and I'm not even kidding you. The five other people I was studying with started singing along. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And this is like a true story. This is the first time in my life I ever wondered if I was in a cult, right? <laughs> and this is a cute song. In fact, a few months ago, they learned about Zacchaeus back in Collective Kids. And my daughter, Elise, when I got home that day, she was singing that song because my wife taught it to her. And so she's running around the house and she's singing about Zacchaeus. But if you grew up in the church, or if you just sang with me, thank you, by the way, I don't want you to dismiss this story as a cute song from Sunday school, right? Because oftentimes we know these songs and they help us maybe pass tests in college, but really there's these songs that we sang as kids and it's all about this little guy who climbed up in a tree, but we miss the bigger picture. So I want you to think, if you were one of those people that grew up in the church that know that song, I want you to think about this story in a different way. Because I wonder why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus so badly, right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was despised. He had no friends. Why would he want to see Jesus? What did he think Jesus could offer him? I think it has something to do with one of Jesus' disciples named Matthew. You see, before Matthew started following Jesus, he was also a tax collector. And so in Matthew 9, we kind of hear his story. It says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. So Matthew is doing his job one day, and he's approached by Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, you should follow me, and he does it. He leaves everything behind. He becomes one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12 closest followers. And of course, Zacchaeus doesn't know this at the time, but we do because we live over 2,000 years later. Matthew ends up writing about his experiences with Jesus, and he gets put in the Bible, right? This is the same Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew, and Matthew 9 is actually writing about his own experience. And Zacchaeus, what we know is that he didn't have close association with other Jewish people. In fact, tax collectors were barred from worshiping at Jewish synagogues. The people that other tax collectors hung out with were tax collectors. And so I think that word had spread among the tax collector community about Matthew and Jesus. I think Zacchaeus knew there was a guy that's just like me for some reason gave everything up to follow this guy. And so I think he's wondering, what is it about this religious teacher that makes a tax collector drop everything and follow him? I think that's what Zacchaeus wanted to see for himself. And we get this, right? A lot of you started coming to Collective because you saw Jesus impacting the life of someone around you. You saw a marriage getting healthier. You saw someone's self-confidence rising. You saw someone becoming more generous or becoming more forgiving or becoming more gracious. And in the beginning, you thought, this is weird, but can Jesus really do that? And so you showed up in church and you showed up here to see, is it real? And you're thinking, if Jesus can help my friend or my coworker or my family, family, can he help me? And this is what Zacchaeus wants to know. He wants to know, can Jesus help me too? Do you ever feel like Zacchaeus? Do you ever feel alone? Zacchaeus didn't have any friends. Do you ever feel like that? Maybe the one thing you want most in life is to be married, and for some reason or another, it just isn't happening. Or maybe you're married, and it's really just a roommate situation. You live with this person, you run errands together, you sleep in the same bed. But if you could use a word to describe your marriage, it would be alone. Do you ever feel like Zacchaeus? Do you ever feel hopeless? Like if you could read people's minds as you walked into a school or work, you know that they would just be looking at you and thinking, I'm not even going to waste my time on them. Do you ever feel empty? 
Zacchaeus was very successful. We'll later see that he was incredibly wealthy, but we can also tell that his money left him feeling empty. Do you ever feel like Zacchaeus? When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Right, and so he's in this town. He's waiting to see kind of this parade of people go by, this group of people go by, and Jesus calls him by name and says, hey, come, come with me. Like, I want to be a guest in your house. And for me, like, the, the moment that I thought of when I read this is, imagine being at the Stanley Cup parade last year, celebrating with the Caps, and Ovi sees you, and he's like, I'm coming over for dinner. Like, the first thing you do is panic, because you're like, what does somebody eat when they are from Russia? Like, what is, what is that? But it's not only that. He sees you. He knows you by name. He calls you by name. How would that make you feel? And Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. The people were displeased because Jesus went to hang out with Zacchaeus. But why are they so upset? Right? Why do they even care? The truth is, this isn't about Zacchaeus. This is about Jesus. And I wonder if there was someone who was there who was disappointed in Jesus, right? Maybe they had heard about Jesus' great teaching, that he could walk on water, that he healed the blind, that he could perform miracles, and they were expecting something great. But instead, they see him go into the house of Zacchaeus, and they think, that's not what I wanted in a leader. I wonder if there was a self-righteous person in the crowd. And this person has been cheated by Zacchaeus, and so he just tried his best to be humble and to follow God through this. And he's thinking, God, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to argue because one day you will reward my humility. And then this guy knows that Jesus is coming to town, so he thinks this is the moment. Right? He thinks this is the moment that Jesus is going to call me, he's going to point me, and he's going to be that guy's super humble. But what ends up happening is he goes into Zacchaeus' house, and so the guy thinks, you have got to be kidding me. What was it that made the people grumble? What was it that made them so displeased? I have a theory. I think they look at Jesus and saw him going to be with Zacchaeus and thought that he was wasting his time. Right? Like they looked at Zacchaeus and thought, he is so far from you, God. Like, why are you doing this? I think they looked at Zacchaeus and thought he was hopeless. I think that they were upset because that isn't who they expected Jesus to be, and that isn't who they expected Jesus to spend time with. Right? They expected Jesus to give all of his attention to people who already followed him. Right? People who are deemed holy, people who are righteous, the religious leader, someone who led a temple, someone who had followed God their entire life. But they were upset because Zacchaeus had hurt them, and they didn't believe that he deserved what Jesus would offer him. I think this is why they were upset. I think this made some of them doubt that he was actually the Son of God. I think this is not what they wanted in a Savior. I'm going to jump ahead and spiritualize this for a moment. One thing we learn about this story is that Jesus knows you by name and he wants to come to your house. See, all these people in Jericho thought that Jesus was going to the house of the person who had it all together, that he was going to hang out with the religious elite and they were all wrong, right? Jesus ruined the game. He did things differently than what they expected. He goes to the house of the broken and he brings them life. That's what he came to do. Religious people thought that Jesus was only for them, but Jesus came for people who were far from him, people who had doubts, people who were lost. And this is why we started Collective. This is why we say we're a church for the rest of us, because that's who Jesus was for. Jesus was for the rest of us. 
And I debated telling this story, but I can't help myself. Uh, a few months ago, I was actually talking to one of our leaders about Collective, and she shared with me a story where she was actually talking to one of her coworkers about this church. And her coworker responded by calling Collective the Shady Church. And trust me when I say she's not the only person that's ever said that. It's not the only story I've ever heard with people having that reaction to Collective. But the truth is, I love it. Like, I really do. Because if being the shady church means that there are addicts here in recovery, I want to be that church. If being the shady church means that we take a Sunday morning, instead of doing music and teaching, we meet in the community to feed kids, I want to be that church. If being the shady church means that we honor people based on our character and not their conduct, I want to be that church. If it means that we teach grace and truth, if it means that we challenge people to grow in their faith and not just spectate, if it means that we hang out with tax collectors and sinners, I want to be that church because that's what Jesus was all about. So let me tell you who Collective is for because this is who Jesus is for. Now, if your life is perfect and every relationship you have is healthy and your marriage is something of a fairy tale and you're successful and have money and the perfect life, Collective probably isn't the place for you. We say that from time to time. We're glad that you're here. But Collective is for broken people because that's who Jesus was for. Collective is for the single mom who doesn't know what it is to not be stressed. Collective is for the addict who doesn't know how to get sober. Collective is for married couples crushed by debt and they just don't know how to get free. Collective is for the rich person who's climbed to the mountaintop and has realized that you can't buy happiness. Collective is for the hypocrite who's tired of their own facade. For the student who doesn't want to fit into culture without thinking. For the athlete who wants more out of life than a trophy. Collective is for broken people. Because Jesus is for broken people. I want to read you something that Jesus said, and this is actually a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. He said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. So if you are tired, if you're worn out, if you're burned out on religion, come to Jesus because he came for you. Right? The church was started for you, not just collective, but the big C. The, the idea of the church as we know it was not started for the religious elite. It was started so that people who are far from God could be found. It was started for broken people. It was started for Zacchaeus. It was started for us. And let's see how he responds, how Zacchaeus responds to this interaction with Jesus. Luke 19, verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. This is very generous. In fact, it's more than generous. Jewish law stated that if you stole from someone, you had to pay back that amount plus 20%. Roman law actually said you had to pay back more. But Zacchaeus goes above and beyond. And reading this, you kind of see how much money he had because he was going to bless people beyond what he stole from them. It's not a small amount of money. But more importantly, it's not a small change of perspective. What would it take for you to give up that much? I'm not talking about financially. Money just happened to be the thing that he had the most of. But I'm just talking in general. Would you give up your addiction? Would you give up gossip? Would you give up your doubts? Would you give up your time? Would you give up yourself? What would it take for you to give up that much? This is what happened. Jesus responded, 
Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. I'm going to explain a few of the phrases that we just read. Jesus says salvation has come. And salvation, it just means to be saved. It means that Jesus has forgiven his sins. It means that Zacchaeus is, has a relationship with Jesus, not just today, but forever and into heaven for all eternity. And Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. This is really important. This is because the Jews believe that they were the chosen people of God. The Old Testament says they are God's chosen people. But later in the New Testament, Paul actually points out in the Bible that it's not just someone who's a descendant of Abraham. It's no longer about a bloodline. It's about those who have the faith of Abraham. Those are the true children of him. So it's not a ritual. It's not your genealogy. It's not the tradition you grew up in. It's not what your grandma tells you to do. It's do you have a relationship with Jesus where you surrender to him with your heart and that is overflowing in the actions that you take? You see, Zacchaeus was Jewish. He was already in the line of Abraham. He was already a part of the genealogy. But Jesus points out that because of his faith, faith. He's a true son of Abraham. Jesus is saying, I can see your faith playing out in the repentance that you're doing. Right? Jesus can see his faith because he's going to go back to the people he's cheated, and he's going to make it right. This is why Peter says in Acts 2, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's you claiming Jesus as Lord and leader of your life. And that leads to the actions of repentance, to turn away from the life you're living. Realistically, it's turning away from this idea that you are the leader of your life, that you are the God of your own life, and saying, God, I want you to put my direction in place. I want you to help me make decisions. And Peter says, then you get baptized for the forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. It's about faith and the actions that flow out of that faith. Right, So many of us say that Jesus is the hope of the world. We say that grace is real. We say that new life is possible. But it can't just be something that we say. It's something that we do. It's something we show. Now I want to read that last verse again in the story because our application is based on this verse. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus' mission was to reconcile himself to lost children, right? So our mission as a church is to do the same. That's why we do church the way that we do church. Our foundation is Jesus. We exist to glorify him with our lives. We're built on truth, so we base, base everything that we do completely on the Bible. But we're gonna do church in a way that makes sense to people that are far from God, people who have never experienced him before because Jesus' mission was to seek and save those who were lost. That means our greatest mission is to seek his lost children who do not yet know what his grace is and bring them home. And there are two applications today based on Luke 19.10. The first one centers on the word seek. And this is really for people who would say that they're followers of Jesus. The mission of Jesus and this church isn't just to know people who are far from God. It isn't just to have Facebook friends who don't go to church. It isn't even just to pray for people who need Jesus. The mission of Jesus and this church is to invite and bring people to a place where they can experience the freedom that Jesus offers, so they can experience the life that he offers. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, the thing that you need to be wrestling with is who are the people in your life that need to be here with you on Sundays? Like, are you actively seeking them out? Don't get weird about it, but are you inviting them? Are you praying boldly that they say yes? Yes. 
This is one of the reasons why we're doing the grocery store buyout. We could totally have church in the cafeteria that Sunday as the school takes care of the gym floors, but we know that you have people in your life that are skeptical about church. They've had bad past experiences with the church and they aren't sure if they can move past it. They don't even know how they would move past it. But you know that if you could just get them around collective, they will love it. And Jesus will begin to impact their lives in the same way that he's impacted yours. And the grocery store buyout is a great way to do that. Right? It might not feel like church, but it is church. That's why there's going to be invite cards on your seats for the next few weeks, because you need to be wrestling with this question. Who are you seeking out? Who are you going to invite? Who are you going to bring? We get to spend a Sunday collecting food for kids in our community who are food insecure, while also showing Frederick that there is a God who loves them. Who are you seeking out? The second application centers on the word save. And all of this hinges on Jesus because it's not about you saving people. You can't do that. You are not the savior of the universe. You're not even the savior of your own life. But this is about you saying yes to being saved. Jesus came to save. And so if you feel like you are drowning, drowning in doubt, drowning in pain, drowning in fear, drowning in insecurity, drowning in loneliness, we want you to know that Jesus' sole mission was to come for you, to save you. He came to give you hope. He came to give you peace. He came to offer you forgiveness. He came to show you grace so that you can live freely and lightly. But the truth is so many of you are afraid to say yes to that. Right? You're afraid to say yes to him because you feel like you're too broken. You feel like you have too much to work on. You feel like you aren't worthy of being saved and you're wrong. Romans 5 says this, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Right? Most people would be willing to die for an upright person, but God sent Jesus to die for us. That was his mission. That was his purpose. And for some of you, the application is really simple. It's just time to say yes to that, right? It's time to say yes to this idea of being saved. Say yes to the help that he offers. Say yes to the grace that he offers. Say yes to the love that he offers, right? And the way that you do that is you put your faith in him, but allow your actions to flow through that. You get baptized. It's not just saying that you have faith, but showing that you have faith. For some of you, for a long time, you've been stuck in this middle ground and you've been wondering, can I take this step? And the thing we want you to know today is that Jesus came for you. He came so you can take that step. His mission was you. His purpose was you, to save you. So what are you waiting for? Check the box in your connection card or come talk to me. At least start having the conversation. Don't run away from it anymore. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was the point. That was the goal. He came for us. When we were helpless, when we, we had nowhere else to turn, when we were broken, when we were still stuck in our sin, he showed his love by dying for us so that while we, still sinners, can be saved. There is no greater news than that. There is no greater mission than that. There's no greater purpose than that. But the beautiful thing about that is that we are his mission. We are his purpose. Jesus came so that we could be found, so that we could have grace, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have hope, and so that we could have new life 
with him. Let's pray. God, we don't really understand why you came for us. God, we don't really understand why of all the people that were there that day, you called out Zacchaeus, um, someone who was very far from you. God, someone who hadn't worshipped you in a very long time. God, someone who was broken and alone. But God, that's who we are. God, that's how we feel. God, we feel stuck. We feel lost. To be honest, sometimes we just feel sad and lonely. But God, we know that you came for us to love us, to care for us, uh, to give us life beyond what we can create for ourselves. Uh, but God, ultimately you came so that we don't have to pay the debt that our sin creates because we can't, but you would pay it for us, God, that you would offer us grace. God, I just pray this week um, that we wrestle with this verse. God, we wrestle with what it looks like to seek and save. God, for everybody here that, that says they are a follower of Jesus, God, that there is a person in their life or people in their life that you put on their heart that they begin to seek. God, they, they've been to care for, they've been to honor so they can bring them into a relationship with you so that you can do what you do, which is better than anything that we can do. God, I pray for the people who um, feel like they need to be saved. God, they feel like they're drowning. God, they feel like life is just too overwhelming. God, I, I pray that as they read this and they realize that you came for them, God, that gives them the peace and the courage to take that next step. God, ultimately, I pray that as a church, collective can be a church that seeks and saves lost people. God, that we love people in such a big way, we honor people in such a big way, we invite people in such a big way that they get to experience you and their life is never the same. God, thank you that you did that for so many of us. God, I pray that you continue to do that in the lives of people that are here that aren't sure and have doubts. God, thank you that you love us so much, that we are your purpose, that we are your mission, that you came for us. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.